like to continue where we left off a few evenings ago. Put another way, uh, so many of the uh, teachings of the Buddha that have been mentioned and the examples I hope have been uh, have uh, demonstrate that what we're doing is that is if if you're practicing vipassana vipassana yogi and we're emphasizing learning there are two main sources that we learn from one is from people who've mastered certain skills or at least have accomplished these skills uh, to a degree which can help us, sometimes referred to as the counsel of the wise. Uh, in this case, it would be the teachings themselves, different suttas and uh, uh, dharma teachings. But the second source of learning are the lessons that we learn ourselves uh, through living and testing these teachings so that we're uh, listening to the teachings and also listening to ourselves. Practice goes like that, back and forth. Uh, you could say we're studying the teachings, studying ourselves, learning about the teachings, learning about ourselves. And skillful action, self-knowing, uh, learning how to live can't be separated from each other because in the process of living, uh, all day long, whatever is happening to us it reveals the ways of the self. And we'll go into that in a, in a little while, which is a highly significant, to see the ways of the self. What was emphasized is skillful and unskillful, as you know. The importance of humility and courage be able to, to really look and learn. If you're not willing to look, uh, how can you learn? There's a limit to what we can learn from others. There's a limit to what we can learn from a book. So we have to be willing to read our own book. And the teachings, the counsel of the wise, good advice, books, videos, tapes, Dharma talks, they're all pointers. They're pointing in the right direction or in a direction, it's for you to find out if it's right. Uh, so a lot of what's been said, to use a, a phrase that is common in our culture, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's often not stated correctly, it's, it's limited. It's said, the proof is in the pudding. I guess it's just, we shorten it. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's a big difference. So the Buddha encouraged doubt, encouraged inquiry, encourage questioning, encourage people to take up the teaching, put it into practice, and to develop this art of wisdom, of living wisely, kindly. It's an art. It's an ongoing learning. I hope some of the examples have revealed that. It's not like there's a code book, and you look it up and so you see how to behave. The more awake we are, the clearer the mind is, the more sensitive we are, the more discerning, the more continuous our attention, and also the more experience we gather in uh, observing, observing how we live, observing the results, observing 
whether we're able to live our understanding or not. Often we know exactly what to do and we betray ourselves. Hope that's not too strong a word. But wisdom is living your understanding. It's being it. So uh, we've, a lot of that, we've gone over that. Other, what else, also what has been emphasized is the importance of daily life. Uh, why make such a fuss over uh, daily life here on a retreat? Why not just say, okay, do your yogi job, be mindful, and then let's just talk about sitting and walking? Because we have an opportunity to develop some, a new attitude, an attitude which uh, respects all of life, wherever we are. We're here. This is a wonderful situation to accomplish certain things. It's as real as the world outside. To me, it is. It's a different kind of reality, different challenges. And it's set up, it's intentionally designed to facilitate certain kinds of skills being developed and certain kinds of learning that are easier to learn here than, than elsewhere. In general, typically they are. But it's not to set this off against where we go, most of us, starting tomorrow. And if you get that message that uh, there's dharma in washing pots, there's dharma in everything, potentially, still seeing our, our formal practice as precious. It's a very difficult balance because I've been trying to do it myself and teach it for many years, and I'll tell you one of the things that happens again and again. If you really put a lot of energy from a teaching point of view into daily life, then people stop sitting so much. And then the rhetoric becomes, uh, daily life is my practice, man. Uh, and no more retreats, no more sitting. We don't need that. We're way beyond that. So then I swing back and emphasize sitting. Go to more retreats. Go to IMS. Go to the Forest Refuge. Yeah, you're right. I really haven't done much of that. And daily life falls away. It gets neglected. So how to come to see there's only life in its many different forms? Each situation uh, is a learning situation, potentially. Uh, so what I'd like to uh, do tonight, I see my two uh, critics are here, uh, <laughs> having made a grand entrance. <laughs> uh, I thought I made a relatively harmless remark about what I, uh, this belly being a cemetery for dead corn muffins. <laughs> I haven't heard the end of it. <laughs> they don't leave me alone. I mean, oh, 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 the cemetery for dead corn muffins. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it was just a passing remark. <laughs> anyway. I'd like to, it's a very, very, uh, it's a brief little sutta, the Donapaka Sutta, and it's uh, King Pusanadi goes on a diet. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's not an attempt to turn IMS into a Weight Watchers boot camp. <laughs> 
Well, you'll see for yourself. Once, when the Buddha was living at Savuti, King Pusanadi of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting. And, and <laughs> I didn't make this up. <laughs> okay. And sat down to one side. The Buddha, discerning that King Pusanadi was engorged and panting, <laughs> took the occasion to utter this verse. It's very simple. Please listen to it carefully. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. It continues. Now at that time, the Brahmin youth Sudasana was standing nearby, and King Pusanadi of Kosala addressed him, Come now, my dear Sudasana, and having thoroughly mastered this verse in the presence of the Buddha, recite it whenever food is brought to me, and I will set up for you a permanent offering of a hundred kahapanyas every day. So be it, your majesty, the Brahmin youth Sudasana replied to the king. Uh, does that mean we have to hire somebody to remind <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay. Then King Pusanadi of Kosala gradually settled down, and this gradually is an important word here, settled down to eating no more than a cupful of rice. At a later time, that means it took time, when his body had become quite slim, King Pusanadi stroked his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this utterance. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways. For my welfare right here and now, and also for in the future. That's it. Um, the reason I've selected this, it, it's not just about eating. What's interesting about it is it's to help a per it improves the longevity of the person, the overall health of a person. And this is what we hear so much of, uh, all the different diets. Of course, what's also suggested here, it sounds pretty simple. I don't know if it's that simple. Do you? Uh, and But what is being suggested is it's very different than a lot of other uh, diets in that what's being emphasized is not the strength of willpower or even different foods, but that wisdom itself is what can help us. It's using wisdom, understanding, insight. Uh, so it's a different kind of diet. Now I'm going to give you an example of working with something like this in my own case. I'm not going to put this thing down here. Yeah. Um, but the reason I picked it is that it's on... See, if you practice in a certain way, you're taking care of what needs to be done in the world intelligently, and at the same time, you're contributing to your freedom. They're not two different practices. It's the same life, one life. If you approach eating in the way I, that I read this sutta, in a certain way, not only do you improve your health, but you develop wisdom and you free yourself. And they're not two separate activities. They're, they both come out of the, ac the activity of paying attention, but the attention is with the intention 
to learn, to understand, rather than to judge. Or just, uh, what is being gotten at here, of course, uh, it's set up in the early phrase, is it's, uh, if you recall, skillful is when the mind, unskillful is when the mind is dominated, uh, controlled by, directed by greed, hatred, and delusion. Those energies in us that want, those energies that are aversive, and those energies that are confused in us, uh, the kilesas, you've heard about these. Uh, and so if you just, let's say, use restraint and control your diet and eat, and of course you can do that, uh, there's one lesson that's not coming through. For example, when it says here, when a person is constantly mindful, I think that simple sentence needs to be amplified. There's more to it than that. Uh, in the Thai forest tradition, there's a phrase used a lot, sati panya, mindfulness with discernment. So it's not just uh, a concentrated gaze. Uh, it's that the attention has interest in it. You're interested in what you're seeing. And the learning comes out of the clear seeing and interest. As the mind becomes clearer and clearer, there's less thinking involved, much less. But to begin with, so discernment is that which enables us to extract some learning, some intelligence. It's the use of our intelligence. So that if you're examining, if you're eating mindfully, and of course you've had a week to practice that, uh, if you've tried it, this, it's endless what you can learn about yourself. And uh, it, you, let's just limit it to food. Uh, it's not simply that you uh, limit the quantity, but also the quality of food. Uh, now, if you're a monastic, uh, there's no choice. If you're a monk, uh, those of you who have been to Asia or who have practiced in Asia, you know that you, a part, an important part of the training is just to eat whatever you're given, one meal a day. And that's, a, that's another kind of learning. But you don't have control over what you eat. We do. And so it just seems sensible uh, to be careful to, to make eating a part of the way you live. Now, of course, that's premised on the fact that you agree with more and more what has been obvious for thousands of years, but more and more is making its way into modern medicine and, and, and contemporary understanding, that diet is tremendously important. Does it affect the mind? Absolutely. Experiment. You already know. You know that certain foods don't agree with you. And sometimes diets say one thing, but then when you try it, your experience tells you something else. Well, which do you trust? Eventually, you trust yourself, but we don't always eat on our own behalf. Now, what does this have to do with a retreat here? This is a place to, it's wisdom. Uh, taking care of the body uh, can be an asset, an ally uh, in, our, in, in a wisdom path. For example... Uh, yoga is very rich, Ayurvedic medicine very rich, but it's not limited there, and you can learn it on your own uh, with the effect that different foods have on the mind. Certainly quantity, we all know. If you eat too much, you'll be sleepy. That doesn't help you with a, a meditative life. Certainly here, if you haven't learned that, I mean, you have to learn it. It's so obvious. Whether you live it, that's your choice. But certain foods agitate the mind. Certain foods enable the mind to be clearer, and light. Certain foods, the mind is, is, is influenced in ways that make it heavy. 
And so after a while, you begin to learn how to... It's one piece to help you. Now, um, the body is a very complicated... It's complicated in, uh, in the sense of how to treat the body. I would say, uh, perhaps I'm oversimplifying things. Uh, that is, in Buddha Dharma, there's tremendous care and lots of antidotes to make sure we don't identify with the body because that leads to suffering. And so sometimes it also leads to neglect, to underestimating the importance of the body because what we're really interested in is wisdom. To me, it's a false duality. I learned this from a a Swami uh, who I worked with many, many years ago before I came to Buddhism. Uh, His name was Swami Sivananda Saraswati. I met him in Canada in Valmarin. And he had come from India. He was in his early 80s to visit. In those days, uh, this stuff was hardly known about to visit four students in North America, one in Canada, three in the United States. They had all chipped in. They'd been studying with him through the mail for many years. And finally, they, they put together enough money to fly him here. He came with an attendant. And I met him at Valmarin. I was there to, to study some teacher training. I soon saw that this is who I should stay with. It was clear he was, there was something very good in this human being and important for me. So I hung out with him, and uh, when the training ended, he started traveling, and I just traveled with him, so I spent time with him. Uh, Wherever he went, I went. We would stay at different places, different people's homes. But here's the important point. He said that when he was young, his main tradition, uh, main teaching was Vedanta, and that the Vedantins... uh, had contempt for the body. It was the, the mere body. And that, that certainly exists in spirituality. I don't mean just in Buddhism. It's as if this lowly body is getting in the way of the really important spiritual development. It's a way of looking at things. And he said he saw, though, that the people who had that, jokes and, and not taking very good care of the body, were often getting sick. And they often didn't have the kind of energy that would be very helpful. And so on his own, quietly, he started to learn. And he, so he learned hatha yoga, and he learned the postures and breathing and diet and so forth, while still being a Vedantin. He was a Vedantin at the time I met him, and a very, very committed, deep meditator. He would, uh, we, there were three of us, his attendant and myself, sleep in the same room wherever we were guests. He would just pop up at about 2 or 3 in the morning from bed and just go right into sitting. No, no breakfast, no shower, and he would go for varying periods of time. So we'd try to do it. And then when he came out of it, he would wash up and get the day going. But what he said was, because he had taken care of his body, he said that he had, it is possible, there's no guarantee in life, it's possible to have a relatively painless old age. It is possible. Okay? What he also said was, some of his deepest spiritual breakthroughs came after the age of 70. So all you gray panthers out there, it's not hopeless for, for us. Okay. Um, no guarantees. He wasn't, uh, you know, kind of uh, have some fanciful teaching. And so what he was trying to say is it's one possible contribution to helping you along the way. Now, when you're mindful, uh, 
why not, in addition to to learning about uh, developing wisdom, as as I, I hope I can make clear, as the sutta points out, why not also pick up any hints that you need about how to live, how to eat? It's one part. Self knowing includes every aspect of living. It's about being a whole person. W h o l e. It's not to become a, a a fanatic food faddist or a health maniac, uh, but certainly it's one uh, piece. And I see, you know, in the early days, even here at IMS, I used to take a tremendous amount of ribbing because I was careful about my diet. I did yoga, I'd, and uh, that's changed as people got older and they saw how stiff they were and how. Uh, so now people do yoga, and there's no fun. We can even teach it here, and there's no ha ha ha. But uh, in fact, there was one skit here uh, at the end of a three-month retreat. Oh, this was one of the very earliest ones, maybe the second year of IMS. I'm not sure. Uh, the, during the, towards the end of the retreat, we would all sort of go crazy, you know, and break out. And there was a skit where different uh, takeoffs and make fun, like a roast. And in one of them, Sharon Salzberg and myself were roasted. And Sharon is definitely, to my knowledge, the world's champion, Olympic champion in slow walking. <laughs> there may be someone now who's slower, but I haven't, I haven't run into it. And of course, I was known as, you know, Mr. Natural, Mr. Health, ha, ha, ha. You know. So in this skit, we're on retreat, people acted it out. And I sneak off, hitch a ride into Boston, see if I can remember all, it went on and on. I get a, uh, I get a massage, acupuncture, acupressure, uh, cranial adjustment, uh, have a macrobiotic meal, a yoga lesson, uh, and about 10 other things. And then I hitch a ride and I come back. Sharon was doing walking meditation. She started at the beginning of the dining hall. And I came back many hours later, having gone through the entire whole health university, <laughs> macrobiotic food, you know, brown rice, all, and she's about 10 feet into the dining room. <laughs> okay. Okay. So how to have a, a balanced view? Uh, Krishnamurti had a way of putting it. Uh, when people would start in, well, you're not the body. Uh, you say, that's true. In a profound way, we aren't the body. But uh, it's something like this. Let's say if you're a cavalry officer, uh, you're not your horse, but your life may depend on taking care of your horse. So let's not, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's suggesting that we take care of the, all the compartments of our life. It's not to be perfect. It's just to wake up a little there. Now, if you pay attention to eating, you learn so much. Uh, as you eat, now here, of course, you can slow it down. You can do it at home as well. Sometimes, you know, not when uh, they're, uh, you know, under the right conditions. Uh, not with guests, you know. <laughs> but there are times, let's say, if you're eating alone, why not devote some time to have a, a mindful meal? You can see, watch, for example, how you approach a meal. A few people here said they had raven, ravenous, wild appetites as they approached uh, a meal, and even though they were well-fed and not hungry. So one thing you could do is just pause, stop, and just eat your breath before you start eating the food. Just calm down a little bit, for goodness sake, and then start to eat mindfully. All kinds of things happen 
One of the things you learn, you might say, that was a delicious meal, and you've hardly tasted it. You, know, you just get a little taste here or there. Meantime, the mind is spinning out all kinds of things. Or even with, with people. We have gourmet meals. The host or hostess put in so much time. We love it. It's delicious. We hardly taste it. You learn all kinds of things. Some years ago, if you pay attention, uh, at that time, this was a while back, uh, things French were in. This is a long time ago. If you went to college, you should spend your junior year in France. That was high status. And things French were in, French cheese, French this, French style. French, you know. And there was one woman who was eating French cheese and who was doing this meditation. And one day she came to a, a practice group we had in Cambridge and she said, you know, I, I found out that I've been eating concepts for 10 years. What do you mean? Well, I've been eating French cheese and I don't like it. <laughs> Uh, and I and now I wouldn't be surprised if now do you really like tofu? I mean I do, but I don't. Uh, it would be something like this. I try to think of a, uh, a an example. Supposing uh, to give you the sense of the power of the mind. Supposing somebody invites you over to dinner. They say, "Come on over for dinner." You say, "Great. What what are we having for dinner?" Oh, we're going to serve some burnt fish. Uh, you might change your, whether you accept it or not, but if, the, if you ask them, well, what are we having for dinner? And they say, oh, we're having Cajun. Oh, Cajun. I can't wait to get, you know, like, did you hear that? Cajun, we're having Cajun. It's just burnt fish. So the mind plays a very powerful role, very powerful, and you get, you get to see it. You get to see what's happening. Uh, let me describe, we've been talking about looking directly into the mind and skillfulness. Let's go back to this example. Let's say if you're being mindful uh, of eating. I'm, my example is relatively trivial. Uh, but even so, I, I'll give you a little bit of a sense of what working with it might be like. Uh, that is, it's not simply saying, oh, just be skillful and avoid unskillful, replace unskillful behaviors with skillful, because how do you do it? Okay. I was leading into with the cupcake fiasco the other night, the uh, muffin fiasco. Uh, I do eat a lot of them, and I concluded with uh, an abundance of medical information and the fact that my father had diabetes. I don't. I'm in reasonably decent health. Uh, that, you know, it would be a good idea if I lose some weight. And I talked it over with a physician, and obviously it's true. It would be a very good idea. And a number of, you know, you know the whole thing, lower carbs and so forth. But a big one for me were muffins, corn muffins. Okay, so you might think, what's the big deal? But for me, one kind of paradise <laughs> is to go to a cafe New York Times, it used to be a cup of coffee, now it's changed to green tea and a, and, a, and, a, and a corn muffin. Just great. And now, so now I've decided, well, I better stop with the muffins. New York Times is okay, the green tea is okay. Uh, and so I took that on as a practice. And the first time it came up, I went into this coffee shop in Cambridge. Uh, I sat, I didn't order a muffin, I just had green tea and the New York Times, and my mind went through extraordinary torment, incredible torment. We can't 
have corn muffin. <laughs> it's like a little four-year-old, you know, sort of like, I don't think I can go on without a corn muffin. <laughs> okay. And I tried all kinds of things. I, sometimes I would go in, sometimes I just bought it and ate it, the hell with you. But little by little, I really stopped. Some, one time, I bought the corn muffin, put it there, but didn't eat it. Okay? And then when I left the, the cafe, there's a homeless man who hangs out a lot around that, and I gave it to him. That felt good. But I still, something was missing. Okay? Uh, it was deeply conditioned. My father used to eat a, you know, for him, a, a New York Times and a cup of coffee and a bagel was his version, and I got it from him. You know? And so uh, there were times when I would just take one bite out of a corn muffin and then not finish it. And finally, uh, but here's, here's something that I learned in going through it. You know, in self-knowing, uh, it's not a mechanical process. When you learn something firsthand about yourself, or even if, when you test the teaching, let's say a Buddhist, the Buddha's teaching, and you really see the truth of it, if you see it is true, for yourself, it's your own then. Before that, it's borrowed. It's not your own teaching. The Buddha said, the Buddha said, uh, uh, X said, that Zen master said, it may be true, but it isn't your truth yet. And, then, uh, and sometimes you just learn some fresh new things. Well, what I learned regarding this might be obvious, but for me, when I learned it, when you learn something for yourself, I feel it brings a certain joy and a greater enthusiasm to continue to explore and to learn, to, to practice, where learning is a part of that practice. What I discovered was, and this is all around just this lowly corn muffin, is that what we tend to do is, remember uh, the Buddha gave a little bit of a, of a hint as to wisdom in action. Uh, let's say if something, if you, don't, if you want to do something but it's not skillful, that, that would be a test. It's not as e not so easy, okay. So of course I wanted to eat the corn muffin, but it's not skillful, okay. So what I saw was the mind tends to op my mind tends to overestimate the value of the corn muffin. It's just a corn muffin, so I taste it. It's not that great. It really isn't. It's a corn muffin. It's okay, okay. So it overestimates what we think is so fantastic. And then it underestimates the consequences. So, oh, you know, what? and then that little voice would come in, you can have one more corn muffin, you've worked hard, you're, you know, and it's been a difficult, it has a Brooklyn accent, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a hard week, you're entitled to have a corn muffin. And it's very convincing, and you know, you have yours too, don't you? Sometimes it's an extraordinarily brilliant lawyer. You know, just can make the case to give you, you know, what you want. And it's simply not true or good or anything, but it's convincing. Okay. Uh, so sometimes, so you can see the art of learning is an art. It's not something that's handed to us. And I'm not saying I've mastered it or, you know, the next year if you come back, I'll be like this king, you know, slender, stroking my knees and how... <laughs> I don't know, you know. But it's not just about, it's not just about eating. That's, that's my point. Uh, now, 
let me draw it out. So what is it that I mean? Why is this relevant for looking directly into the mind that Carol and I have been emphasizing for a, n- a number of days now? Uh, the problem is uh, ignorance of our mind. We don't understand what's happening. The essence of vipassana is mind. Insight into the workings of the mind. That's where the, the greatest suffering comes out of, the action that comes from a confused mind, a mind dominated by uh, the afflictions. Now, when the Buddha says, you can skip over this very easily. When a person is constantly mindful, and I would add, and discerning, and knows that when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. It's not just talking about weight. What is happening is at the same time that you're caring for the body, you're also caring for your heart, for the mind. There's a little bit of wisdom. Look, let's say if you're doing yoga, and any a decent yoga teacher will caution you that if you uh, stretch too much, you can tear something. So you want to stretch, but you don't want, if you go too far, you can hurt yourself, so don't do that. What if we add just a little bit of tweak, it, add a little bit of a crinkle, that that's greed in action. That's the wanting mind in action. It's the same thing. You overdo it and you hurt yourself, but maybe you don't learn that lesson. And so uh, while you're doing working with the body, it's possible for the mind to start learning how to live on a, on a, diff- on a subtle level as well. They're not outside each other or, or independent of each other. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Um, okay. I like to get to uh, self-knowing. Uh, Dogen, uh, a great Japanese master, uh, puts it this way. He says, this is about what Buddha Dharma is for, for Dogen. He says, to study the self, you could say to learn about the self, to study Buddha Dharma is to study the self. That's what we've been talking about. To study the self is to forget the self. What? To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So what is one way of understanding this, or at least the way I understand it, uh, is that we think self-knowing is uh, getting more and more information about ourselves to fill up our, uh, this novel that the mind is writing about, the story of my life uh, starring me, where I was born, where I'm going. You know, uh, in the process of getting to know the self, you let it go. Now, the Buddha at one point is challenged and the person says, look, I don't have much time. Just give me the core of the teaching. What are you really getting at? And the Buddha says, don't att- I'm paraphrasing slightly, don't attach to anything as being me or mine. What we call selfing. Where we use whatever happens to us to, to help sustain, create, uh, sometimes uh, afflict this notion about who we are. These are images. This is the mind at work. Okay, so uh, in the, when you're fully attentive and you pay attention to what's going on, no matter what the activity is, when you're really right there, there is no me or mine. When you're fully attentive, uh, there is, that attachment's not there. Mindfulness, real attention, and identification with what's happening, which is nourishing, 
the sense of me and mine, they don't go together. I think Corrado pointed that out a few evenings ago. So when we're fully attentive, uh, there is wisdom in that moment. There's a, a w- wakefulness in that moment. And the, uh, what we're attending to is contributing to waking us up. Um, another example. One of the reasons it's hard for us to admit our mistakes, speaking in general, and if you want to learn, certainly learning how to live, as I, I think was emphasized, you have to be able to, if you make a mistake, that's not anything wrong. That's not demeaning. That's how you learn. If you, the, one of the reasons it's so difficult is that it's a threat to our precious self-image. And, we, and so we have to blame someone else. We have to do anything but understand that this is an opportunity we have made. We have lived in a way that's off. You know, a lot of sorrow points out to us that we've been living in a make-believe world. If you, if you can learn it, the sorrow, it doesn't come with a little sign and says, you're living in a make-believe world, and that's why you're suffering. But if you start paying attention, you'll see some of the good of suffering is that it's giving us a chance to see, see through certain ways of living that simply don't work. The pudding doesn't taste that good. Okay, so uh, many of you were asking, some of you were asking questions about relationship, and, uh, and I'd like to link that uh, with what's been said so far. Uh, we carry around images of ourself, and we carry around images of other people. In the extreme, they're prejudice. It's prejudice uh, having to do with race or nation or ethnic group or religion. It could be anything, occupation. But even when, we get, when we're free of that, if let's say you know someone for a long time, let's say your partner, whether you know it or not, we t- tend to have images of them. We also, of course, have images of ourself. Okay. When we meet the person, we're seeing them through that image. We're not really seeing them clearly. We're seeing them through the accumulation of, of what has happened in regard to them, often, sometimes over 30 years. When we have an image of someone, it's a conclusion about them. It's not them. And in that moment, now I've experimented with this with my wife. It can really refresh a relationship. Wake it, it just rejuvenates it. Uh, because, oh, yeah, sure, we have certain patterns that are repetitive. I do, she does. And sometimes it's uh, obstinately familiar. And we're not seeing very clearly. It doesn't mean it's not bad. It's not like I was angry or anything bad. But it wasn't fresh. And then I'd see that my mind had certain conclusions about the other. It's not limited to intimate relationships anyone. And of course, and then once you see that, it falls away. And then you see that person in that moment. Same familiar person. It's not like you have, we're not training to become amnesiacs. It's just you see that person in that moment with a freshness. And sometimes you can pick up subtleties of mood and understanding and what it, whether to be quiet or whether to ask a question or whether... The, in other words, it can contribute to wisdom. Of course, the big one is how we relate to ourselves, our own images. And I'd like to um, move to... We're getting into the big stuff now. When the Buddha says... 
Don't attach to anything as being me or mine. That's the cutting edge of the whole practice, the heartwood of the bodhi, the heartwood of the practice. One of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, put it that way. And he suggested a practice which I've been doing now for years. It's very simple, not easy, is that we can't help selfing. We can't help make uh, me or mine. It comes up. But let's say you're, you make me about something, but it's accompanied by mindfulness. Then it's, it's um, benign. It's not dangerous. It's when we go to sleep on ourselves. And then this self-assertion, self-preoccupation, preserving this image at all costs, that's when it becomes really costly. So then what is this awakening? I don't particularly like the term enlightenment. I feel awakening is closer. Um, there's a story that you probably have heard. Certainly if you've been in Zen, you've heard it over and over again. You've heard me say it over and again. But I, I'd like to uh, finish up with it. Um, so perhaps it will help you see uh, what I'm driving at, what the, the teachings are driving at. And so far, I don't know if you've seen, what I'm saying is you're looking into your mind. So what you're learning here is eminently practical. It's not just, you don't leave it here. You can get to be attuned to your mind throughout the day while you're doing whatever you're doing. But it's hard to get it started often. Okay. Uh, Bodhidharma brings the... T- this. Uh, I don't know if it's myth or history, but it doesn't matter. It's a good teaching. Bodhidharma brings the teaching to China from India. The emperor uh, asks him, uh, first of all, starts coming on, going on about how he supported monks and nuns and built monasteries and done all these good things. How much merit does he get? Bodhidharma says none. The emperor is really hurt. And so he asks him the next question, what about the holy dharma? And he says, nothing holy, just vast space. And the, the emperor is getting, not getting what he wants to hear. And so he's, he said, in effect, who are you saying this? Who are you? And Bodhidharma says, I have no idea. <laughs> now, does that mean he's in big trouble? That he has some difficulty with his brain? It, it, means, it means that he's not an idea. He's not... A, so much of what we think we are is what we think we are. These are conclusions that the mind makes. We objectify ourselves. We don't realize that. And we're defending it and fighting for it and nourishing it and uh, patching it up and getting hurt by it and insulting it. Uh, these are all about. And the practice, if you understand, as you look into the mind, to see the self is to forget the self. As you start seeing it, it falls away. It, falls, it doesn't stand the test. Have you seen yet in your practice when you look at a thought, it falls away? Some of you said, well, you say be mindful of thinking, but when I do that, the thoughts fall away. Great. Don't look for trouble. What, but, but then the mind is used to, well, this isn't really important because it's only if you're thinking planning, plotting, scheming, or doing something, then you're alive. That's real. We don't fully understand silence uh, and the beauty of that. So uh, when when you're looking into your mind, you're contributing to emptying the mind of all the notions that it has about itself. And Bodhidharma says, I have no idea. He's not lost. He's found. What he's saying is, I'm not an idea. 
Now, what you want to call that, it's called so many Buddha nature, original nature, true mind, uh, Kensho, whatever you want to call it. But when everything is cut away, what's left? That's where we, that, that's, I have to use this language, it's inadequate who we are, and that's where we live from more and more. Um, this is all getting to know the mind in action and on the cushion too as well. I'd like to finish up with a, one of my favorite spiritual teachings. If you forced me, I might even say it's my favorite. It comes from the Jewish tradition. Um, there was a, uh, a man named Buncher Schweig. It meant Buncher the Quiet One. Very shy, uh, didn't have a very important occupation, um, just ordinary, ordinary person, lived an ordinary life, very quietly, but uh, he was an extraordinarily generous and kind person. Uh, and so, as these stories always go, uh, he, goes to, he goes to heaven because he's such a good person. And, and he said, Buncha, you've been such a wonderful human being, now you can have absolutely everything you want. And Buncha is speechless, he doesn't know what to ask for. They try this way and that way. And find this, he, he doesn't ask for anything. You've been wonderful. Now you can get whatever you want. What is it that you want? So finally, there's such pressure on him. He says, okay, okay. Can you see to it that I get a bagel and a cup of coffee every day? <laughs> it's not just funny. It's funny. It's cute. It's ordinary. We have a few moments of silence. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on June 29, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.